pastors will get together with other pastors that are in the area or this region and, and meet and talk and, and, and minister one to another. And this last week that took place for me and I met some people that I had never met before. And one of them was a pastor of a church and, and, and uh, that church had been around for um, many decades. I, I think the church was 80, 90 years old. And he was a fairly new pastor to that particular church. And he asked us to pray because they had been thinking about changing their name, the name of the church. And when asked why, it was the reasoning that was given was because for this particular church, it's been there for so long, they have people that are there that they, they're grandparents now, they're in their 70s and their 80s, but they were a part of the youth ministry that was there at that church back in those days. And I just, I heard that, and I, I just thought, how precious is that, that, that there'd be those that would be a part of this, the youth ministry, part of the children's ministry, and now they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren within that same particular church. But the, the pastor had shared that, that even though he had only been there for a fairly short period of time, that that the church had gone from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people down to a very small congregation. And, and he said, I don't think there's been anybody new at the church for years. And he said, maybe a, a new name in the community would be something that would help to just have people come. And so he was going to bring that before his congregation. And, and one of the other pastors that was there, someone I, I, I respect highly, had said, you know what, we... we we as a church, we started and we, we just had lots of people coming to church because it was new in the area. We had our sign out and it was a new church and lots of people were coming all the time to church. We'd see new families coming regularly. And he said, and, and, and that was a blessing and God built a church and it was good. But after a period of time, it was no longer new. And there wasn't the same number of people just coming in, whether they just wanted more solid Bible teaching or they, they'd been someplace where they didn't like this or they didn't like that, and now they've merged and they've come into his church. He said, there came a point where it was no longer new and they weren't getting visitors and it wasn't something where the church was seeing a whole lot of growth in, in, in that area. And, and, and he said that, that his realization was that, that the congregation had come to a place of being so comfortable thinking, well, God's just going to bring people because people just came. They always came. But he said that the congregation just wasn't kingdom-minded. It wasn't that they were looking and saying, we need to go proclaim the gospel. We need to go preach the gospel. We need to go to our neighbors and we need to go to our friends and we need to go meet people and proclaim the gospel to them and bring them to church and to invite them to come and to, and to, and to be a part of the fellowship of the saints. He said, that was gone in our church. There was no longer an urgency towards that because we just kind of looked around and said, like, well, God just keeps bringing people, doesn't he? But what he said was that that wasn't the idea of the church. The idea of the church isn't, isn't you know, let's, let's build a church and the people just start coming. The idea of the church is that, is that we would be here and we would study God's word and we would have sweet fellowship that would be here together and that we would grow in our knowledge of God and our love for God and the clarity of the gospel and then we would be fishers of men. We'd go out and we'd proclaim the gospel throughout our land and even to the uttermost parts of this world. 
It's not like a fishbowl and, and, and it's just like, come, jump in the bowl. It's let's go out and let's be fishers of men. Let's go out and proclaim the gospel. And so this, the pastor's exhortation to, to this other pastor was, it wasn't a matter of whether you should change your name or not. He said, that may not be the problem. It may be that there just needs to be a change in the way in which the members of the congregation think and their passion for the gospel, their passion for the lost, their passion to proclaim the gospel here and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And I didn't say anything. I just sat there and I listened, but it affected me. I thought, what about our church? Is it possible for us to get to a place where we're just, God builds a church. I mean, here we are, we're 11 years old and we started out at Chirico and now we're here and God's blessed us with a building and there's new people that come all the time and we see God doing a great work. Or is it that we at the same time have a passion for the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to meet people who are unbelievers and to share the good news of Christ with them? that we might see the Lord build his church, not simply from people leaving other churches and coming here, but from people who were once dead in their sins and trespasses coming to know the grace of God and forgiveness of sins that comes through the precious blood of Christ that's been shed for us and through faith in him. And I pray that that would take place. When you look here at the early church, we are going to see God do just a radical work. We have been in the first two chapters of Acts. But now in chapter 3, we see that continue, don't we? The, the, there is a work that God is doing as he builds the church. But that work comes through prayer. That work comes through the fellowship together of, of believers, the encouraging of one another, the stirring up of gifts that each and every one of us has within the body. And it also comes with the proclamation of the gospel. And we're going to see the Lord work in just mighty ways in this. We're coming, we're going to look at, well, possibly, the, the whole chapter of, of Acts chapter 3 this morning, because I think it flows together, even though there's a lot here. But in, in chapter 4, in, in verse 4, it, it talks about these people who are going to hear this sermon from Peter. And it tells us that those that heard the word believed, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. This is awesome what God's doing in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are here and they go and they minister to a man who has been crippled for over 40 years. And God does this mighty work. The gospel is proclaimed as people gather to see what God's done, and nearly 5,000 people come to know Christ. Acts chapter 3. It's radical when you look and see what's taking place because it's not a matter of Peter and John just being like, hey, let's just go and we'll meet and like, we'll see who shows up. They're going and they're going to proclaim the gospel. They're going and there's a passion for the lost. They know Christ They've been there with Christ. They've come to know him in such a way that they adore him and they love him. They've seen him upon the cross and they've seen him rise again from the dead. And they know that the only place in which you can find forgiveness of sins and the only place in which you can find eternal life and the only way that you can find fellowship with the Father is through Christ. And they desire to proclaim that everywhere they go. There's a kingdom-mindedness that's there within the early church. And the result is... God does a radical 
work. And so Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, it begins by saying, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John, there within the early church, say, let's go. And the, the, the word that's used means that this is something that they did on a regular basis. They go up to the temple to pray. To pray. It starts with that. It starts with Peter and John knowing that they can't do anything by themselves. The first thing that they begin with is we need to be people who pray. We're about ready to go about our day. We're about ready to go to proclaim the gospel. We need to be in such a a place that before we do any of it, we need to be people who pray. People who start our day with, with prayer and begin or three o'clock they're not starting their day but middle of the day they probably started their day with prayer but now they're going to the temple they're going to pray together but they, they, there is a clear knowledge of their dependence upon christ and his enabling um, if you're not somebody who prays regularly you have way too big of a view of yourself and way too small of a view of god we can't do anything apart from him To think that we can be solid in our marriages or in our families or in our workplace or in our witness or in any area fighting sin or anything without God's enabling and without calling upon him in prayer, we've missed it. And so here you have Peter and John and they go up to pray. A man by the name of Dixon says, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. He says, nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place, but when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. I mean, you you could think like, well, I'm I'm organized, we're doing this, we're doing that, and look at how we're going to build this church, and we got such a great plan, and here's all the things, and you're going to get what organization can do. If you think your brilliance and your education is going to do it, education is important. It's incredibly important. But when you're relying upon how articulate you are based on your education, you're going to get what education can do. And you could go on. Your eloquence, the way you're able to present things, the way you're able to say things, when you rely upon that, you'll get what eloquence can do. But when you come to God in prayer and you just say, like, I'm not highly educated. I'm not someone who's organized. I'm not someone who's eloquent, but I can pray. You get what God can do. And that's what we're seeing here with Peter and John, fishermen. Martin Luther said, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. This wasn't someone that accomplished little in his life he's like i got so much to do i i have so much to do that i better spend the first three hours in prayer not that you all have to do that but the mindset of i got so much to do i must spend time in prayer our mindsets are we have so much to do i don't have time to pray we're so busy we don't have time to pray and that's not the way that he thought And so here they are, they go up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. 
And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So here's this man, Acts 4.22 tells us that he was lame from birth from, for over 40 years. So he's my age. He's over 40 years old. And he's always been lame. Legs have never worked. Um, I think of a, of a, of a young man in, in Midigo, Uganda. Uh, his name fails me right now, but what is it? Say it again. Yeah, what she said. Um, it's a hard one, but at least for my hearing right now. But it was like, okay, so anyhow, I, this guy, bless his heart, like, but he, he, his legs didn't work. So he would, he would just pull himself on the ground wherever he was going to go, and he would just he would drag his body. And I, I remember seeing him for several years that I'd go to this particular region, and he would just grab the ground and just pull himself, and his legs would follow behind him. And uh, we, we eventually were, were able to be a part of, of bringing him a... a Mechanism where he could use his hands to, rather than a wheelchair, he could use his hands like a, a little bicycle to move him wherever it was that he's going to go. And he cruises, he cruises all over that area of, of, the, of, of that the northern Uganda um, with that now. And, and just, it's, it's awesome. But you, you can see, like, his legs have, are, are atrophied down to, to just skin and bones for the most part. And he would just pull himself wherever it was that he was going to go. And so when, when, I, when I think of this, I think of him. I think of, of what it would have been like at that time where the ADA access and things like that is not in existence. And so for the most part, wherever he was going to go, he's going to pull himself by his arms to get to wherever that next place is going to be. And when he wants to, to you know, go about his day and, and, and all, there, there's no career for him. The career for someone like that is to beg. And so they would take him for the entirety of his life, and they thought, like, hey, this is the place where you can get it. Like, you go to the, the temple gate, and, and, and you go stand there, and people are, are going in, and they want to, like, you know, look good before God, so they're, they're more likely to give to this guy at the temple gate. And, and so you go there, and we'll, we'll lay you there at the beginning of the day, and then we'll come pick you up towards the end of the day. And you just sit there and just beg all day. You're a beggar. Beg all day. And so this is what this man's life looked like. And so he's there, and in verse 3 it says, he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he asked them for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So here's this man, and he's got his head down, and he's got his, his tin cup or whatever it is that he has, and he's begging for alms, like, could you spare something for me? And Peter looks, it tells us that Peter specifically looks at him and fixes his eyes on him and says, look at us. So the man looks up. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. 
silver and gold have I none. I don't have any, I don't have, we don't have silver or gold. Now, you can imagine this man, his heart kind of just sinks at that point. Well, that's what I want. I want some coins. I want some kind of money. I, I, I want something. But Peter says, look at me. Silver and gold have I none. But he goes from there to say, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This man's hoping for a couple coins, a single coin. But he's about to receive something that is way different than he ever imagined on that day, 40-some years into his life. Silver and gold I don't have, but such as I have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Awesome. Here this man is, and if if you've ever seen somebody in that condition, their ankles have gone down to nothing. Their muscles have gone down to nothing. He's in a place, he knows his condition. He knows his legs don't work. He knows his lot in life is to be a beggar. He knows that he's dependent upon everybody from the time that he was born to carry him and to move him wherever it is that he was going to go. And here, Peter and John come. Look at us. And then they say, rise up and walk. And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. You think? This guy is as happy as he could possibly be. Everything has changed for him. He came into that place, legs not working, sitting there like he did every single day, begging for money and having people walk right past him or maybe some people throwing a coin in. Everybody looking down upon him as a beggar. But now he receives strength in his legs. Luke, who's writing this, is a doctor. He knows every part of what's taking place here. And he says, Peter took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And so leaping up, stood and walked and into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is a picture of what Isaiah told us would take place in the time of Christ, where it tells us in Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. Like a deer. All the people, verse 9, saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is one of the miracles in which we find taking place in the early church. You remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it tells us that the, the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers and fear, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Well, Acts chapter 3, this is one of the many signs and wonders that were being done. 
Even the enemies of Christ couldn't deny what had taken place. It tells us in Acts 4.16 that that the leaders within, the religious leaders were saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Everybody knows that this guy is walking now. We can't deny it. Everybody knows that he's walking. Well, in verse 11, it says, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And here's this lame man walking into the temple with Peter and John, and now he's just embracing them. So thankful for what has taken place. It doesn't mean that everybody's always to be healed like that. There's those that would say, like, okay, we have this, this healing ministry, and and. And so you give your money to us and we're going to help you get healed. And, and honestly, these guys that are on TV, I don't think any of them can say silver and gold have I none. They don't say that. They, they got plenty. But you also find that they'll say, well, you, you, the healing process has started. It's not great yet, but it's started. This, this, this hasn't started for this guy. He jumps up. He's walking and leaping and praising God. It happened immediately. See, when, when God does a work, he doesn't have to like kind of just get it started and good luck to you on the rest of the way. We serve a God that can heal. And he can heal completely, immediately. But he doesn't always do that. I mean, you find it even... In 2 Timothy 4.20, where there's a man, Trophimus, who it says, I've left in, in, in Miletus sick. So Paul's saying, I, I've left him, but he's, he's sick. wasn't lack of faith on that guy's part. It's just he's sick. You, you find it even with Paul where he's saying, unless I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. I'll boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul said, I, I pleaded with Christ three times. Please take this from me. And, and, and God says, no. There may be areas of your life, health-wise, where it's just, I pleaded with God to take this. And God says, no. And yet, at the same time, he tells you, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength's made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So when Peter saw it, verse 12, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? Again, a much different response than what you find with the health, wealth, prosperity movement that exists today. These guys are just saying, why are you, why are you marveling at this? And why are you looking at us? 
Why are you looking at us as if it's, it's our power or godliness that made this man walk? I love this. They're saying it's, it's Christ. It's all Christ that's done this. This isn't us. This isn't Peter and John. This isn't the disciples. This isn't something that we are able to muster up. This is Christ that's done this. Every part of them is pointing towards Christ. It's not their desire to become famous. It's not their desire to make money. It's their desire to say, we just want you to see Christ. We are coming here to prayer. We are walking in the Spirit. God is working miraculously. There's all kinds of signs and wonders that are taking place because God is showing all of you that Christ has risen from the dead and He still exists and He is within us in the person of the Holy Spirit and He is building His church at this particular time and He is going to do an awesome work. And so it's Christ, not us. May we have that heart not ever wanting to bring attention to ourselves, but rather that our attention would go towards the Lord. We're, we're starting within our, our community groups uh, a book by Francis Chan called Crazy Love. So if you've been a part of the crazy, uh, the, the crazy groups, the, the, the community groups, <laughs> ours is, okay? Right, we, got, we got Brenda West. So you, you look and, and where's Brenda at? Oh man, she's not even here for that. Okay, we got Mike. So you, you look and... and you, you have your community groups. We're going through this book, and it's Francis Chan that, that is the writer, and he pastored a church of over 6,000 members up in Simi Valley. Um, and he said that he, he was becoming Christian famous, go to conferences, speak, and all these people would come. His church was growing. I mean, 6,000 people, it's a huge church. But I thought it was interesting because he... I read from him, and he, and he said, I, I've told my church before that I don't like hearing my name so much. One of the problems at our church is when I hear wor- the words Francis Chan more than I hear the words Holy Spirit, we're, we're going to go nowhere fast as if that's, the way, if, if that's the way we keep talking. I also know there have been times when pride was in me. I remember getting ready to speak at a pastor's conference and there was a magazine with my face on it on every chair. Quite honestly, there was a side of me that liked it. And then during the worship time, God showed me just how disgusting it was. And I began bawling like a baby, asking, what have I become? I was wailing on the ground with snot coming out of my nose, a complete mess. Then suddenly the worship time was over and I was invited to come up to speak I was still a mess, so I just confessed to all of these pastors, I've become everything I didn't want to be. I'm so disgusted with myself, and God is disgusted with this attitude I've had even coming in here. It's weird. You almost don't see it in yourself. He says, that was a big part of the reason why he walked away at the peak of his professional career. He says, I think there's been too much emphasis on me. I want to be used by God, but I think I have this desire to, to, but I think we have this desire to make heroes out of people rather than following God and the Holy Spirit. He said it was for that reason that he stepped down as a senior pastor of his church. Went to Asia for a considerable amount of time. Now I think he's up in San Francisco with little house churches proclaiming the gospel there. He said, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want us to make a hero out of me and I don't like what it does to me when I get excited that my face is on magazines. I'm, 
think it's time for me to leave this church of 6,000 people because you guys keep talking about me and I don't like that. I don't think every pastor that has a big church needs to do that. Not at all. But I appreciate his heart in this. Just being in a place of it's not me, it's Christ. It's not being a celebrity pastor, it's Christ. Pointing people to Christ, pointing people to the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Christ, and just knowing like, he just said, I want to go to Asia where no one even knows who I am. Proclaim the gospel there. This church is still doing fine. It's praiseworthy to be able to just see how God can use us but he is not dependent upon any one of us. We get to be used for his glory and for his kingdom, and we get to proclaim the gospel, but may we always, always give the glory to Christ and point people back to Christ. In verse 13, it says, um, let me go back to verse 12 real quick. So Peter saw it and responded to the people, men of Israel, Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Then he says this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Um, This is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same one that had made all the covenants in the Old Testament pointing to Christ is the same one now who has glorified his servant, Christ. That phrase, his servant, Christ, it comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 52 refers to behold my servant. Um, And then it goes from there to Isaiah 53 where it just gives detail after detail of the cross. That he would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be upon him. By his stripes we'd be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on from there to say, he is my righteous servant. The same phrase is used here in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, where he glorified his servant, Jesus. Even though this was the one in whom they crucified Now, he's saying specifically that these people, these Jews that lived at this time, you crucified Christ. Pontius Pilate, he was determined to let him go, but you wanted nothing to do with it. May this never come across as being anti-Semitic at all. The fact of the matter is Jews were there, and they were a part of putting Christ on the cross. The other side of it is our sins were a part of putting Christ upon the cross. Not only that, but there's none of us who were dead in our sins and trespasses that would not have put Christ on the cross. We're all guilty before him. And so in verse 12, it it goes on, I'm sorry, in verse 14, it goes on and says, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. You killed the Prince of Life. But God raised him from the dead. You think of John 1, verse 11, where it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Then the next verse goes on and says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. They didn't receive him. None of them did. 
But as the Holy Spirit came and worked in the hearts of the people, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. He's the prince of life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so verse 16 goes and says, in his name, and in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, has thus been fulfilled. And it was. All that took place at the cross, all that took place in the life of Christ and his death and his resurrection, was all prophesied beforehand. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. He's talking to this group of people, and he says, repent, therefore. Make a change of direction. The idea of repentance is I was once going this way, following after all of my sins and whatever my flesh desired. I don't want to go this way anymore. I want to change and I want to go that way after what God calls us to do. I want to hate sin and the things of this world and I want to love righteousness. I can't say, well, this is just how I am. This is just who I am. I'm allowed to sin in these ways because this is just who I am. This is my life. This is my lifestyle. This is the sins that I'm prone towards. And so I'm just going to continue to go this direction. God's just saying like, no, repent and go that way. Make a radical change in the direction that you go. Go the opposite direction. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Repent and be converted. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a change of direction. Go the opposite direction and be converted. These words are so precious to us. Be converted, meaning be made a new creation in Christ. Your old ways are passed away. They've become new. Be in a place where you're no longer dead in your sins and trespasses, but you're made alive in Christ. Be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. The preciousness of those words, repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, gone, removed, as far as the east is from the west, hidden behind the back of God, hurled into the depths of the sea. Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. There's nothing that any of us need more than to have our sins blotted out. Blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Literally reads, that there may come seasons of refreshing from the face of the Lord. Things will change radically. Verse 20, so that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before from heaven whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, all. And all the prophets, from Samuel 
And those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. A change that occurs. This man, sitting by the gate begging. His ankles, his legs received strength. He leaped up and went walking and leaping and praising God. We'll find that it came because he had faith in Christ. His hope was in Christ. This man's life was radically changed. We're going to find in the next chapter that nearly 5,000 people come to know Christ. Through the testimony of this man and what God's done in his life, and through the faithful proclamation of the gospel that Peter just gave. For a lot of us, because our legs do work and we're not begging, we don't realize that we are without strength and that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're beggars with no ability to change our status apart from Christ. You are that man that was sitting next to that gate. He got strength in his legs, and he jumped up. But the greatest miracle that took place was what took place in his heart as he came to salvation. It changed everything about that man way more than his legs. I pray that the change that people see in you as believers would draw countless people unto his kingdom. They see us as radically different from the time when we were beggars next to the gate. Walking, leaping, praising God, a radical change that's occurred in us. And that it comes with the proclamation of the gospel just as Peter gave. You read what Peter said here and it's not incredibly eloquent. It's not in a place of where it's highly educated. He's just saying Christ fulfilled what all of the prophets said. You crucified Christ, but God raised him from the dead. Whoever believes in him will have life. 5,000 people come to know Christ. Because of the change that took place in this man's life who was once lame, once a beggar, and the Holy Spirit working to bring people to Christ. May we find ourselves like that beggar next to that gate and call upon him for forgiveness. If you haven't already. And for us who have been saved, God help us to be walking and leaping and praising God. For you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but he has made you alive in Christ. You were once covered in your sins, but he has blotted them away. You were once under condemnation and under the wrath of God, but for you now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
there is a radical change that has occurred in us as believers. And that change is available to all who are here this morning. Repent. Don't continue in the direction that you're going. Repent and be converted and trust solely in the work of Christ and what he's done for you on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and for the righteousness in which he alone can give to you. And may we all walk out of these doors walking and leaping and praising God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for the text before us. What an awesome thing you did in Acts chapter 3. I pray, God, that you would do that within our church. If we have lost any sense of kingdom-mindedness, if we've lost the idea that, that they won't be saved without the proclamation of the word, without hearing it, I pray that we would find ourselves so joyfully used by a sovereign God through a Holy Spirit who can give us all the words that we need, through the Holy Spirit who has the ability to change hearts, to give us words of proclaiming the good news here into the uttermost parts of this world. May we find ourselves walking and leaping and praising God, for we were once without strength, covered in our sins, and beggars. You've changed everything for us. I pray that the world would see that, that you give us great boldness in the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.